Alright then, Victorplasm episode 107, Children of Dune by Frank Herbert. So listeners, Happy New Year, and uh, I'm just going to finish off the Dune cycle because uh, it's occupying space in my brain and I need to talk about it. Um, After that, I think I'll go for something that's a bit of a palate cleanser, but that's to come later. So um, this is the third and final part of the first Dune trilogy, uh, and it concerns Paul Mordive's legacy, the Golden Path, and the political activity around the twins Leto II and Ganema, uh, as well as the tragic fate of Paul's sister Alia and the changing face of Arrakis itself. And the twins are, I think, about 10 years old in the narrative, although they're pre-born, which means they have age and experience far beyond their physical form. So as always, I'm going to give a synopsis and then make some remarks. And I'm going to try and avoid going over things that I've already discussed, but I will inevitably make reference to previous episodes. So I recommend you go back and listen to those first. Um, Although I guess if you're a Dune fan, you probably will have. Uh, Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. Anyway, this novel has most of the established characters from the first two novels, uh, so I won't go over them, but I will make reference to them. But the crucial new characters are Leto II and Ganema, the twin children of Chani and Paul. Around age 10, as I mentioned, they've been pre-born, they have a lifetime of experiences that make them more mature than they look by a matter of centuries. Then there's Princess Wencisia, I hope I've pronounced that correctly, Princess Wencisia Carina, who's the sister to Irulan, and she's at the heart of an assassination plot directed at the current Imperial line. And then Faradin is Wencisia's son, who's being groomed for the Imperial throne, um, you know, assuming that her plot succeeds. And then finally we have the Preacher, who is actually Paul, although he's renounced that name, he's renounced any relationship with either the Atreides, or the religion that bears his name. And there are a few minor characters in addition, uh, including, importantly, members of the Cast Outs. Now, these are the um, the water stealers, the, you know, a, a bad actor tribe from the siege of Jakarutu. And they're the bogeyman characters of the third book, kind of doing the same job as the Telexau in the second book. You know, they're transgressive characters who are being employed by the major antagonists to exact their spy game. And although their transgression in this case is to the Fremen way of life, rather than the Bene Gesserit's notions of humanity. And um, alongside them, we have the established characters, as I mentioned, uh, like Alia, Jessica, Duncan, um, Duncan the, the Gola, and Gurney Halleck, and also the return of Baron Harkonnen. So there are four plot elements I think you need to bear in mind. First, we have the threat of Alia succumbing to abomination, which is a condition that all preborn are vulnerable to. What we mean by abomination is that Alia has been possessed, partially or completely, by one of the many intelligences that she has inherited as part of her genetics and being pre-born when uh, Jessica took the Water of Life. Now, actually, Alia has already succumbed to abomination, and early on in the plot, this has been identified by the twins. Um, you know, they've had this conversation that says, oh, I think our aunt's uh, now fallen to abomination. I was like, yes, I agree. So it's it's an indication of their their maturity but also um, Jessica then comes on the scene 
and she's there to bear witness to Alia's degeneration early on in the plot. And it's got a whole load of the Bene Gesserit sort of, um, you know, looking for subtle signs that other people might miss. But of course, Jessica has been trained to be aware of her surroundings and aware of the cues from people. Um, Jessica's also concerned about uh, her grandchildren falling to the um, you know, possession and abomination. Um and that drives a lot of her action in the plot. I mean, there is the concern that the twins are, you know, they, they have this potential vulnerability. Um, and it is a, it is an open question. It's also, I think, to be fair, it's a something of a fear for both of them. Um, although, again, they have this incredible maturity. So it's not stated as a sort of hysterical fear, but it's a, it's definitely a concern. So that's the first plot. The second one is that there's a political plot by Princess Wincissia Carino to assassinate the twins. Um, and this is more overt and, and an obvious action. You know, it's a it's a holdover from the first June novel where Paul deposed Shaddam IV. For one thing, it's revenge against the Atreides for that reason. And the third item there is the changing face of Arrakis itself. And this is evidenced through the changing customs amongst Fremen, you know, that the habit of young Fremen to walk around without still suits, uh, the general green terraforming of Arrakis, the lack of water discipline. Um, so this is a generational thing. And, and um, if you recall in the previous episode on Dune Messiah, that was at the halfway point when um, the older Fremen uh, could, you know, they could still remember uh, Muad'Dib's revolution. And uh, but here now we've got the next generation coming up, and their attitudes have clearly changed. Um, it's also notable that there's a fashion elsewhere in the Imperium for wearing clothes that appear to be still suits, but are actually you know that they have no function. So you know it's like a fashion for biker jackets. And then finally, at the heart of the changing face of Arrakis side, there's the existential threat to the worms. Um, there's the idea of human schemes upsetting the natural balance and threatening the unique value of Arrakis and its place in the Imperium, uh, which, you know, is, it's, everything is quite tenuous. Space travel relies on spice, so it relies on Arrakis, and it relies on the ecology of Arrakis. And the final thing, uh, we have the golden path, uh, you know, the, the future possibilities glimpsed by both Paul and Leto, uh, the very necessary plans that they've put in place to ensure humanity's long-term survival as the idea that the Golden Path will be this terrible hardship, but it will be better than any other potential outcome. And that's not discussed too much in this novel, but it's a foreshadowing of things to come as well. There's also a, a motif of perversion of religious teachings, and that's that's continued from... The previous book, I think, uh, the idea that the um, the priests who ha who followed Muad'Dib and have become part of the establishment have lost touch with the actual uh, spiritual centre of human civilization on Arrakis, uh, and it's typified by the way that the preacher formally opposes Muad'Dib's religion. So then the action begins with Jessica visiting her grandchildren and witnessing the signs of possession in her daughter Alia, as well as looking for the same in Leto and Ganema. And as I previously mentioned, Leto and Ganema have voiced their own concerns about their aunt's possession. Now, Jessica's father being Baron Harkonnen was a fact established in the first book, 
and the Baron becomes the predominant personality occupying Alia. So going forward, for all intents and purposes, it's the Baron who is the primary antagonist, you know, ruling from behind the throne, just as the Bene Gesserit did in the past. And there's still some Alia in there, but as the plot goes on, she's regarded as no longer Atreides, and the suggestion that you know her ability to control herself and occupy her own body is diminishing. And there's a really strong and interesting start to the novel, where there's this suddenly urgent threat from within the court. So it continues the, the motif of, of traps within traps and traps within plain sight that we got from the first book. Um, there's this early on manoeuvring of both sides with you know Leto shoring up support from Stilgar and other Fremen, and particularly to ensure the safety of his sister if his plans go wrong. And then also early on, Jessica looks for signs of abomination in Leto and Ganema and finds none yet. But it's clear that Jessica doesn't trust the twins. There's a couple of very significant exchanges between Jessica and both twins on, in two separate scenes. Um, and the more unsettling one is where Leto demonstrates his true nature to Jessica, the way that he embodies not only a very mature person in a child's body, but the actual identity of his grandfather, who was her lover, as well as generations of Atreides before. And in addition to that, he's aware of the golden path that Paul was aware of, but too afraid to embrace. And this whole thing made me think of an artificial intelligence awakening. Um, the standard trope is a massively capable and aware artificial system suddenly given consciousness and making decisions which are... I don't know, out of character given its age or providence. Uh, so here we have a 10-year-old Leto um, talking like a grand strategist and philosopher with centuries of experience, which he does technically have. And there's this kind of cognitive dissonance between the form and what he's saying, and, and there's a couple of conversations like that. At least that's how it was in my head. But anyway, the plot moves on with Leto and Ganema fleeing into the desert, only to be ambushed by trained tigers from Seleucus Secundus. Now, this is Princess Mencissi's plot to assassinate the twins. She's made a gift of uh, special clothes, which will attract the tigers, and they're being trained by a specialist from Seleucus Secundus, who has um, Ixian or Ixian or Talaxu technology with them or something. Of course, naturally, the assassination doesn't succeed, but to make them think that the plot has partially succeeded, Leto's death is faked. Uh, faked in the way that Ganema effectively hypnotises herself into believing her own brother's death, um, so that the truth can't even be divined from her by a truthsayer. And this begins Leto's solo journey into the desert as a first step on the Golden Path. Um... Now, before I switch to the other things that are going on around the same time, I just want to mention one very important scene that happens between Leto and Stilgar before embarking on this quest. So, you recall how Stilgar is a common and present observer throughout all three books over 20 or so years. And also remember how he has a strong investment in Fremen tradition, and in the myth of Paul Mardib, even though this has been distorted by the church of that name. So Leto talks with the same frankness as he did with Jessica about his awareness of what must be done and his pre-born state, uh, and the fact that he has to effectively tear down the religion of Mardib in order to correct things. Now this scene is in the sci-fi miniseries, and it's a it's a good one. Now, Leto goes with Stilgar out into the desert for a one-to-one -one and tells Stilgar that he will have to 
um, demystify his father in order to fix things. He'll, he'll basically have to attack the myth of, of that his father became. That's a very watered-down version of the conversation that happens in the book, where Leto points out that either Alia wins and assassinates the twins, or Leto and Ganem are marry and breed to steer the bloodline back towards the Bene Gesserit scheme, or Leto just tears down the temple. And, you know, Stilgirl's horrified by all three options. But he's not just horrified by that, he's horrified by the maturity of this 10-year-old boy speaking to him. You know, the, the exchange is not the friendly confiding that we get on screen between James McAvoy and Stephen Burkhoff. Um, Leto makes it clear to Stilgar that he's not a child, he's many times older than Stilgar and, and the other adults. And I guess up to this point, Leto has never revealed this to Stilgar. And um, I, I think it's fair to state Stilgar reacts with genuine horror. But anyway, um, elsewhere in the plot, Ganema returns, having fully adopted the belief that Leto has been assassinated. She uh, finds and kills the assassin brutally. You know, they're, they're basically an off-worlder with... Uh, and they've got the Telexo technology on them that allowed them to train and control the tigers. And it's fairly transparent that House Carino is behind this. And so Ganema adopts this vengeful persona, insisting that if she's forced to wed for Adam she will murder him in revenge for her brother. And this is a line she sticks to right to the end of the book until Leto's return. Now, as for the preacher, what he's doing at this time, this character is an agitator who is preaching against the established religion and gaining support in Fremen circles, much to the consternation of Alia and her priests. And I think all along Alia suspects that this is Paul, but there's not really any proof. Certainly she has nagging doubts about this character and the threat they pose, but for now the preacher is more of a background noise. and It's in the novel's final stages where he gets a spotlight. But all this suspicion around family members and the willingness to sacrifice them, um, I mean this has been a theme throughout all of the books i think it's a it's a recurring theme throughout the series and we also see it in jessica and her concerns for alia and the grandchildren who she feels she may need to kill and on the side of the bad guys alia is possessed and so her moves against her own blood are self-interested but on the good guy side it's not much different only they justify things differently. Um, for example, Leto says later and, and repeats several times that Alia is no longer Atreides and therefore justifies her death that way. It's all very cold. Um, okay, um, getting slightly ahead of things. So, uh, in the plot, Alia next attempts to assassinate Jessica, mainly because she's about to call Jessica out as an abomination. Jessica flees to Fremen allies, and then later she and Duncan are abducted by House Carino and take her to Seleucus Secundus, where she meets Faradon. Um, and he wastes no time in giving his mother up, saying that the plot to kill the twins was Wencisius, who is subsequently banished, and that's the end of her. She, she exits the stage. And the plan forward is to have Faradon wed Ganema, so... This is then prompts Ganema's assertions that she intends to kill Faradon. Um, but the idea there is, you know, again, to heal the political rift. Just echoing back to the very first book where they talk about um, uh, Jessica was instructed to bear a, a female heir who could have been wed to a Harkonnen male to, to heal the rift between the two houses. Um, anyway... The other thing that happens with Faradon is Jessica begins training him in the Bezni Jesner ways. And 
this part of the plot never really made a lot of sense to me, other than it's kind of a, a bargaining chip to get Faradon on side. I mean, it, there are a few reasons that Jessica might do it. One of them, it's effectively she's turning him uh, from a, a House Carino to a Bene Gesserit, and therefore that increases her leverage over him. What it does, though, is it does explain how the Bene Gesserit exercises work when they're starting to train new people. Um, in in the book, Faradon is taught to visualise his own hand and how it will appear throughout all the stages of his life. Um, and he gains uh, this temporal perception of his body from youth all the way to old age. And this is disappointingly reduced to some silly martial arts training in the TV series. But um, this actual temporal sense is really important and very consistent with some of the other uh, observations in the uh, in the book then uh duncan idaho duncan idaho has a part in this plan and negotiation as well um so they've they've been taken to Seleucus secundus and they they talk about the plots that have gone on and the the way to resolve things um now duncan idaho is a mentat uh, and of course he can plot logical paths based on information available and actually there's this great passage which sheds some light on what mentats actually do um it's presented as rather than the complete discipline of the Bene Gesserit method to perceive and control the body the mentat training involves totally surrendering to the flow of information and then making computations on an almost instinctual or subconscious level and I thought that was an interesting comparison uh, in light of the previous comparison between Bene Gesserit and Bene Tleilax. Um, but anyway, it's all part and parcel of the magical powers in this universe, you know, which include time vision of Paul and Leto, access of the pre-born and reverend mothers to genetic histories. Uh, so it's all consistent. And this sets up then two of the three strands for the great convergence at the end uh, with... Ali is caught on Arrakis, where the uh, Ali is waging um, something of a war with the Fremen rebels, and House Carino and Seleucus Secundus, who will be converging on Arrakis for the, the purpose of the wedding. And then the third part is uh, we go back to Leto. Um, Leto's own quest, out on his own, into the desert, um, it did strike me, it fits quite well with Campbell's Hero's Journey Cycle. Um, I guess I'll, I'll save that for the remarks section. But anyway, Leto's gone through the first few stages. You know, He's finally struck out on his own, crossing the threshold, as it were. And then through his own sense of the path he has to take, he searches for Jakarutu, where he's abducted and subjected to training at the hands of Namri, the father of Javid, who is one of Alia's priests. So we have this... Um, this connection of Namri and Javid to the uh, the water stealers and um, as you know untrustworthy agents as well. But anyway, Leto's training involves a spice trance where he's fed more and more melange, whilst being questioned to determine whether he is in control of the former lives within him and or whether he will fall to abomination. Um, this is Namri's speech to Leto when he captures him. He says, quote, you could not be permitted to go on as you are, the man said. Very bad. Before ascending the throne, you need to be educated. The whiteless eyes stared down at him. You wonder how one could presume to educate such a person as yourself. You, with the knowledge of a multitude held there in your memories. That's just it, you see. 
You think yourself educated, but all you are is a repository of dead lives. You don't yet have a life of your own. You're just a walking surfeit of other, all with one goal, to seek death. And uh, Namri goes on to test him with a number of verbal puzzles, you know, seeing his responses. And he warns Leto that if Leto fails to satisfy him, he will be slain. Um, Leto sees his grandmother's hand in this. So it's really a test for whether he will succumb to abomination. And this is confirmed by the appearance of Gurney Halleck as Namri's ally, who is also overseeing the testing. But the twist here is that uh, Namri is actually an agent for Arlia and always intended to kill Leto. Leto overcomes the spice trance and awakens in much the same way as Paul did uh, when he went into his spice trance, and then he escapes. And this leads him to find others of the cast out and eventually come to command them as he transforms his own body into a worm-human hybrid by um, forming a skin of sand trout over his body which is mistaken by others as a, this weird still suit, which in a way it is because sand trout insist water. So it's even more efficient at preserving his body's moisture than a still suit would be. So Leto effectively becomes superhuman. I mean, he's incredibly strong and fast. He can leap vast distances. Um, and at this point, he makes his return, um, but not before a final scene where he faces the preacher, who is Paul, um, but has, uh, as previously mentioned, renounced the name and identity of Paul and exists simply to oppose the religion that sprang up in his name. And together they return to Arakeen for the final confrontation. And there are a couple of other things that happen, uh, just uh, as a bit of narrative housekeeping. Um, Duncan Idaho forces Stilgar's hand by killing Javid uh, Alia's priest, uh, the uh, son of Namri, and thereby violating the neutrality of the siege. So Stilgar is forced to kill Duncan in return, you know, not because he wants to, but because he has to. Um, and now we have to remember that Stilgar is still a conflicted character who is devoted to the name of Muad'Dib and has probably been dodging taking any action by declaring himself and his siege neutral between Alia on one side and Jessica on the other. But it all comes to a head as the, all the characters converge back on the palace. Uh, and the, the bullet points of the climax are, first of all, all characters converge on the palace. Um, the preacher is murdered in the street by one of Alia's priests, you know, much to her distress. I mean, she, she demonstrates that, you know, genuine grief about that. And um, there's, th this is a clue that there's still some of Alia inside. Um, Ganema resumes her previous identity um, and confirms with her brother that their plan to fool everyone worked. You know, so she's shrugged off the the uh, self hypnosis um, of uh, of this identity of someone who who wants revenge on Varadhan. Um and she also hardly bats an eyelid at his new form, unlike everyone else. Um, uh, Leto displays this superhuman strength and total physical dominance of the situation uh, he simply cannot be harmed by anything and is capable of, of tossing around half ton weights um, and Alia is forced to choose between killing herself um, or submitting to the trial of abomination which she would fail anyway and so she takes her own life by auto defenestration Ganaman marries Faradon as a political alliance finally um, or pledges to marry and of course, this sets everything on the golden path. Now, um, 
there are a couple of details I want uh, to discuss at the end. Um, because if I don't, then I'll, it'll, for one thing, it'll downplay Ganon's contribution to the conversation. Um, so, um, the first detail is what happens after. Uh, and there's this, there's this passage that's in the book. Um, and, and it's also, it's also reproduced in the series where Ganema recounts that, um, during the day, Leto runs and runs until he's exhausted. And then he comes back to rest his head in Ganema's lap and asks her to find a way for him to die. And this foreshadows the hundreds of years to come with Leto as an immortal god emperor who is steering humanity on the golden path. What it also does, though, I think, is it shows Ganema, Leto, and Faradon forming a similar triangle to Paul, Chani, and Irulan. Uh, in that, there's the difference between marriage for political reasons and true affection between, in this case, siblings, who are closer than Ganema could ever be to anyone else. Um, so Faradin doesn't really have a chance. Although Ganema says they may be love. And it's notable that Irulan, who has grown older and wiser, does say to Jessica that she, she did genuinely love Paul, uh, despite the fact that he refused to give her children. The second detail, then, is there is some time between Leto's transformation in the desert and his actual return to Arakeen. It's uh, months, I think. Um, so during this time, information gets back to Alia um, as Leto foments a Fremen rebellion, but they don't know it's Leto, they think he's dead but what they do hear is that there is a demon in the desert which is uh which is basically uh whipping up the fremen um and not really a benign figure but more of an elemental force i would say and the third thing that uh, that is interesting is that uh, leto reflects in his own mind how cruel he anticipates having to become in order to keep humanity on the golden path um, it's probably this that Paul couldn't stand. You know, Paul anticipated the jihad in his name that would change the Imperium, and yet everything pretty much collapsed in the second book. Um, so Leto effectively has to tear down the bad job his father did of being a, a bastard and do it all again to be even harsher. Um, and the other thing about Leto is right at the very end, there's a confession that whilst Ganema didn't fall to abomination... Leto did. You know, he's just managed to keep a balance between his internal voices. And this is part of the final conversation about what abomination is, and also how the Bene Gesserit dogma that abomination is a terrible thing and people are totally consumed by the ancestral memory. That, that superstition is not helpful. And Leto admonishes Jessica, I think, for that uh, superstition and short-sightedness. So now, as is my want, I'm going to make a couple of additional remarks about the third novel. And the first, there's the theme of transformation, which happens in the narrative, but it also happens in the context of the series, in how we um, in how we perceive some of the characters. And in this case, both the Fremen and the Atreides are shown to be something more than was previously indicated in the uh, in the first book. And for the Fremen, there's a lot of philosophical detail in the conversation between Namri and Leto during Leto's trials. Pursuant to the last episode and the discussion of law and chaos, there's this interesting monologue from Namri, who, who says, quote, You have not listened to me then, Namri said, and there was a knife edge in his voice. Night was the time of chaos. 
day was the time of order. That's how it was in the time of that tongue you say you will speak. Darkness, disorder, light, order. We Fremen changed that. Eos was the light we distrusted. We preferred the light of a moon or the stars. Light was too much order, and that can be fatal. You see what you Eos Atreides have done? Man is a creature of only that light which protects him. End quote. So this marks the Fremen with a lot more depth than they previously had in the first couple of novels, I think. You know, originally they were certainly a disciplined and philosophical people, but here we see that it's not just the spice that makes Arrakis the centre of the known universe, um, but it's the insights of the Fremen peoples. Now, of course, the Bene Gesserit's missionary protector has sown philosophical ideas throughout human cultures, but this to me doesn't sound like someone parroting scripture. It sounds like comparative philosophy that the Fremen, or at least some of them, have even more awareness than they're previously given a credit for. And of course, there's this, this line that um, God created Arrakis to train the faithful. So they, they come from somewhere else. And at the same time, we learn that the Atreides bloodline isn't just a noble house either. It can trace its roots back to ancient Greece and King Agamemnon. And we learn this through the twins' connections with their past selves. It's a bit more involved than that, and I expect there's more detail in God Emperor of Dune. But I confess, I've already stopped after this novel. So um, when I read the next one, it's going to be fresh for me. And I have two feelings about this uh, this revelation that um, the Atreides aren't simply a noble house who is popular and up and coming and therefore threatening the Emperor's position. Um, the first thing is, it does make a bit more sense about how certain Fremen curse the name Atreides. It adds a bit more depth there. And, and early in Children of Dune, one or both twins state how they knew the Fremen even before they came to Arrakis. So there is past history. A second, it does change the Atreides from a house that ruled through overt political manipulation to, um, well, colonial settlers by divine right. And I kind of felt this undermined the initial situation and tragedy at the beginning of the first book. And supposedly the Kizat Hadrach emerged too soon. You know, it was a mistake. It shouldn't have happened according to the Bene Gesserit's plan. Uh, and my thought was, uh, well, that's chaos at work. Right in Jeff Goldman voice, chaos. Um, but having the Atreides as destined masters of the universe taking Arrakis by divine right, well, um, if they were role-playing game characters, this is like saying that they're special because of what's written on their character sheet rather than what they do with it. Um, and so Dune is partly a story about entitled people coming to Arrakis and being taught a few home truths and Paul going through the crucible and then disrupting the status quo. But if the Atreides name is kind of a golden ticket, that kind of puts a different complexion on the plot, I think. But, at least in this book, it's not about whether Ganema or Leto have a right to rule. It's about Leto taking a courageous and self-destructive step. Now, I'm intentionally engaging with fiction only by taking the book at face value, uh, without any of the the surrounding fandom, which you know is pr freely available on the on the internet. Uh, but I felt this whole uh, revealing that oh yes, we were we're descended from King Ag Agamemnon uh, was just not necessary. You know, just saying that the twins have a rich genetic heritage was enough. Um, 
you know, dropping in the, by the way, one of my ancestors was King Agamemnon, does kind of smack of, oh, do you know who I am? Um, then I suppose we have the counterpoint from Namri when he tells Leto that he's not really a person, just a collection of dead names. Uh, and that at least does show some awareness on Frank Herbert's part. So um, I think it can be excused. The other question is how far has the Bene Gesserit's breeding program gone? And my guess is, without looking at the wider fandom, is that they identified the preferred bloodlines and then brought them together. And there is a minor theme about the transgressive nature of preserving bloodlines. I mean, sort of, I mentioned transgression a couple of times. Um, there's part of the conversation between Leto and Stilgar where they're discussing possible outcomes. Oh, yeah, I might have to marry my sister, or I might be expected to marry my sister. Um, there's also a clue elsewhere in the book where the aim of the Bene Gesserit's breeding program is to bring about a pharaonic dynasty, i.e. to emulate ancient Egypt, which could be a reference to um, keeping bloodlines pure by means of incest. And I guess that by the 10th millennium, you could plausibly overcome most of the problems that would cause, although, of course... Count Fenric was excluded from being a candidate for the Kuzat's Haderach by being a genetic eunuch. So, you know, it's not entirely fixed. Um, anyway, I'm wondering if Modiphius is going to release a supplement called Dune Incest Across the Imperium. I guess we should stay tuned for that. So anyway, moving swiftly on, the other remark I want to make is how Leto's trials fit with a monomyth, as explained by Joseph Campbell and others. Um... And the Dune novels predate the later analysis of the monomyth, which uh, I'll, I'll link the Wikipedia page in the show notes. Um, but basically, Campbell's monomyth uh, format was um, from 1949. And then the next analysis is sometime around 1980. So it's, it's after this book. Um, anyway, the monomyth has three essential parts, departure, initiation and return. Uh, so let's say that Leto's moment of crossing the first threshold, that happens when he and Ganema contrive his death following the assassination attempt. And after that, he has to go in search of Jakirutu in order to be transformed. And he winds up in the uh, the belly of the whale, to use one of, um, one of Campbell's phrases, about to be tested by Namri at the long-abandoned siege of Jakirutu. Um, and from then, we move into the initiation stage, the second stage, which includes... Um, road of trials, meeting the goddess, temptations of the woman, atonement with the father, apotheosis. Uh, I would be wary in reading too much into the gender presentations of the goddess, the father, and so on. These have been criticised by, by later scholars as being a bit misogynistic. Um, there is this whole male-female balance going on in the uh, in the Dune sequence. You know, the Kizatz Haderach is supposedly able to see into places that women are not able to see. And you could plausibly look to Jessica as a goddess figure, and it's her scheme to test Leto. Um, also, Leto effectively reconciles with his father through awakening to the Golden Path and then achieves apotheosis, gaining physical power and um, being deified, basically. But it's probably better just to simplify this in terms of the later analysis of the monomyths, which is essentially um, you descend into the underworld, discover self, and then go through a rebirth and return, uh, return with the elixir in the third part. Um, and Leto is coming to terms with himself during the second phase, you know, gaining his own identity. I haven't looked into whether any academics have drawn this conclusion or if Herbert himself deliberately followed this pattern. 
I wouldn't be surprised, but I also I, I don't want to read into it too much because you know it's it's easy to see patterns if you're invested in seeing them. Um, the one bit of Campbell's monomyth that I think is worth comment is the very last step um, that Campbell calls the freedom to live, which is freedom from fear of death. So the idea is that the hero has uh, gone through these trials, descended into the underworld, uh, been reborn, come back with the elixir for the benefit of all humankind. And then at the end, they have a freedom just to be themselves. Now, there's no question that Leto has entirely conquered any fear of death and literally become immortal. But at the same time, he's in a state where his whole path is mapped out. You know, he knows exactly how cruel he's going to have to be, and he's balancing this against his own desire to die. He's definitely achieved the acceptance of self, that is the end state of the hero's journey, but it's questionable as to whether he's actually free to live in Campbell's sense. But um, crucially, Campbell's end state is a state of accepting not only oneself, but also neither anticipating the future nor regretting the past, which you know does fit remarkably well with Leto's path. Now, the, the one big problem we have with playing a game in the Dune universe is that the original fiction is so heavily invested in this monomyth that the monomyth will cast a, a long shadow when over the agency of the PCs. Um, I'll take a quote from Steve Dempsey, who said this about the new Modiphius game. Quote, I've been playing the Modiphius game and it works okay. The only problem I can really see with it is the level of paranoia in the setting. It's a bit like searching for traps every ten foot in the Tomb of Horrors. How do you make sure you've got all the bases covered all the time? We're playing a pre-Atreides game and the political setup is interesting, but most of the situations we've had are from minor cases of treachery rather than being aware of and using our power in the world. End quote. Now, I haven't read the Dune RPG. Um, I suspect that this is actually a fairly normal mode of play, similar to, say, the Eternal Champion RPGs, in that your character is measured against the baseline of a, quote, normal human being, and then you build them up. Uh, so even though you might be powerful, you're not going to be conceptually at the same level as Eternal Champions with their relationship with law and chaos. And you compare this to a game like Amber Diceless, which starts from the assumption that you are a godlike being and therefore operating on the god scale. That Then that becomes more plausible. But it's also a big challenge to set up political games. And I suspect that the Dune game doesn't do much heavy lifting because most, most at least traditional games, or I think most games don't do any heavy lifting in terms of setting up political situations. You know, they... What most games do is they rely on long-running campaigns to bring the political landscape to light and to evolve that. We also have the example of Call of Cthulhu, I guess, and and you know there has been a a shift towards more of the spiral of horror and despair with the lights of Cthulhu Dark, which I think is fantastic. Uh, but Call of Cthulhu remains role-playing in the worlds created by Lovecraft, and I expect that's what most iterations of a Dune game would be as well. And I like big ideas and games, but I'd be really wary of sapping the agency of the players by inserting them into a situation with a known outcome. Um, I am interested in the different eras available for play in the Dune game and how far before or ahead of 10.191 they go. Um, so if you have a perspective, I'd love to hear it. 
Alrighty, to round off the episode, I'd just like to go back to Children of Dune. Um, the good stuff first includes all of the performances, the pacing, the set pieces. Ian McNeese is great as the Baron. Alice Creech uh, is really great as Jessica. James McAvoy makes a great Leto and so on. Um, now, it doesn't cut corners as far as the plot goes, but it does water a lot down, which is to be expected as I think you'd struggle to get it made today with some of the themes let alone 20 years ago. You know, there's the merest hint of Jessica's discomfort in seeing her own Leto and Jane in James McAvoy's Leto II, but that would be so much harder to do if they had a 10-year-old actor. Um, there's also a bit in the book where Leto and Ganymer effectively role-play the relationship between their mother and father, both of them having inherited their parents' memories and personalities. But also, Jessica has no part in Leto's trial at Jakarutu. And there's no gurney there either. Instead, this is a ploy simply to turn Leto mad like his aunt. This I felt was strange because they could have involved Jessica in that part of the plot. It would have actually strengthened the plot, I think. It would make Jessica a bit more ambiguous, you know, a potential antagonist. But it was just cut out of the plot. You know, also, uh, Leto's relationship with Stelgar is very much simplified. It's much more congenial. You know, Leto doesn't shock Stilgar in this adaptation in the way that he does in the book. And the other bits merging the plots of the two books are perfectly fine. You know, I, I think there are some minor changes that fit the narrative better. For example, Leto fakes his death even to Ganema so that her story is plausible. The Golden Path is discussed as well, as are the ecological concerns around destroying the sandworm's habitat. But even these are downplayed. You know, the, the full horror of what Leto has done to himself isn't really touched upon. All the things he'll have to do, although they do mention the way that Leto takes to running in the desert and then returning to Ganema at the end of the day. Um, and as for the sandworms, there are sightings towards the end of the book of dead sandworms. You know, these massive decaying hulks which have hitherto been unheard of. You know, no, no one sees dead sandworms you know and this revelation also doesn't happen in the series although leto does have a vision of just that you know this this verdant arrakis in a possible future littered with the corpses of sandworms yeah, anyway um it is worth watching definitely um it doesn't have the same depth as the book but it definitely complements the book so worth a view and i think it's free on prime anyway that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for staying with me over the course of the last three Dune episodes. The next one, the next episode will be a bit lighter. <laughs> uh, but anyway, Happy New Year. If you enjoyed listening, please like, share, subscribe, tell your friends. Um, give me a five-star review on iTunes. And also, if, uh, if you'd like to know more and get a bit of bonus content, you can check out the Patreon, which is in the show notes. Music, as always, is by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at www.chrissabriskie.com. Until next time, bye. Bye.